0: Norma Jean was a lonely girl. Her mother was a single woman, and the constant struggle of trying to eke out a meager existence for herself and her daughter during the Great Depression took a toll on Gladys Monroe Baker's mental state. Even on her best days, she wasn't very loving toward her daughter, Norma Jean. This left the little girl looking for comfort where she could find it. That place was often the local bijou where for a quarter she could forget all her troubles and bask in the warm glow of the flickering silver screen. She'd stare up enraptured at her idols, at Gable and Hepburn, Jean Harlow and Fred Astaire, Errol Flynn and Greta Garbo. Sometimes Norma Jean would wander outside Grauman's Chinese Theater and read all the signatures of the movie stars in the sidewalk out front. She'd place her tiny hands in Betty Davis's palm prints and dream one day of being as big a star as she was. Little did she know then that one day she would be. Not just a big star, but one of the biggest. An honest to goodness Hollywood legend. You see, one day Norma Jean Baker would transform herself from the skinny little girl with big dreams and go on to become Marilyn Monroe. Norma Jean Mortensen was born on June 1, 1926, to Gladys Monroe Baker, a flapper and film cutter who worked in Los Angeles. She was later given the last name Baker from Gladys' former husband, even though that man was not Norma Jean's father. Norma Jean never knew her biological father, although Gladys saved enough money to buy a house for her and Norma Jean to live in. She couldn't keep up with the mortgage payments, and she was eventually forced to rent out a room upstairs to boarders. Norma Jean later told her mother that one of these men molested her, although Gladys needed the rent money and refused to believe her daughter's story. When Norma Jean was still little, Gladys was committed to a mental institution after suffering a nervous breakdown. Gladys' own mother had also died in an institution, and there's considerable evidence that her mental instability was passed down to Norma Jean as well. After Gladys went away, Norma Jean would become a ward of the state, first being sent to live in an orphanage, and from there to a series of foster homes. The constant trauma of being bounced around from home to home made Norma Jean a shy and insecure child with few friends. She developed a stutter, as well as frequent night terrors, a condition that typically fades away as a child grows older, but Norma Jean would continue to suffer them for the rest of her life. In 1942, when Norma Jean turned 16, her then-foster parents told her they were moving away from Los Angeles, only Norma couldn't come with them. Norma, finding herself caught in a situation where she might have to return to the orphanage, ended up marrying a young man from the neighborhood named Jim Doherty, Norma Jean tried to be a loving wife to Jim, but even back then her husband was well aware of her sudden mood swings. Sometimes she'd be sweet as a kitten. Other times she'd fall into one of her foul moods and start shouting and crying for no reason. When Jim shipped out to the Merchant Marines, Norma Jean was nearly inconsolable. She got a job working in a defense factory where one day she caught the eye of a photographer named David Conover, We thought the shapely brunette in the tight coveralls would make one heck of a pinup model for the G.I.s overseas. From there, she continued to pick up enough modeling gigs to support herself over the next few years. And in 1946, one photographer suggested she dye her naturally dark hair platinum blonde. Norma Jean filed for divorce shortly after that and scraped together every cent she had in order to take some acting lessons. Soon after, she began auditioning for the movies, and in 1946, Fox signed her to a contract. Afterwards, studio execs talked her into dumping the name Norma Jean for another name they said sounded more glamorous. She combined the first name they suggested with her mother's maiden name. Then she got plastic surgery to her nose and chin, and from there, Marilyn Monroe was born. Marilyn Monroe went on to become one of the biggest sex symbols in film history, her name and image are legendary, and the public's fascination with her hasn't waned over the years. But on August 5th, 1962, Marilyn's film career was cut tragically short when her lifeless body was discovered inside her tiny Los Angeles home. Although the official explanation for Marilyn Monroe's death was probable suicide, right from the very beginning people have been asking questions about whether this is what really happened. There are some people today who believe Marilyn Monroe was murdered and that she had been at the heart of a dark conspiracy involving some of the most powerful people in the United States. I'm Nate Hale and Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And this is The Conspirators. At just before 4.30 a.m. on August 5, 1962, Sergeant Jack Clemens of the Los Angeles Police Department received a call that he thought at first had to be a joke. It was a man who identified himself as Dr. Hyman Engelberg, Marilyn Monroe's personal physician. He was calling to inform the police that he was at the actress's residence and that she had just committed suicide. Sergeant Clemens got into his patrol car and headed to Marilyn Monroe's home at 12.305, 5th Helena Drive in the affluent Brentwood neighborhood. As he drove down San Vicente Boulevard, Clemens radioed for a backup patrol car to meet him at the residence. He found the house at the end of the street and pulled through the open gates leading up to the courtyard. As he got out of his car, he heard a dog barking somewhere nearby. When he got to the front door, he knocked and had to wait a few minutes as he heard shuffling footsteps and hushed conversation coming from the other side. The porch light came on and the door was opened by a middle-aged woman who identified herself as Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray. Sergeant Clemens followed Murray through the house to Marilyn's bedroom, where he found the star dead of an apparent overdose of sleeping pills. The body was sprawled across the bed with a sheet pulled up over her head, leaving only a bit of ash-blonde hair exposed. Also present in the house at that time was Norman Jeffries, Murray's son-in-law, and Marilyn's sometime handyman. When Clemens entered the bedroom, Dr. Engelberg was sitting near the bed with his head bowed and his chin in his hands. Marilyn Monroe's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, stood near the nightstand, hovering over the actress's dead body. The two doctors pointed out the scattered pill bottles on the table next to Marilyn Monroe's body and told him that the star had taken her own life. Sergeant Clemens had been called out to many suicide scenes throughout his career, and he knew right away there were several things off about this one. Marilyn's body lay face down with one hand still clutching the telephone. That remarkable face that had enchanted millions of moviegoers was devoid of makeup and was now splotchy with signs of lividity. The telephone cord ran over one side of the bed and lay beneath her. When they pulled the sheet away... Sergeant Clemens was certain he identified strange bruises on her body. Everything he saw indicated to Sergeant Clemens that the body had been moved. He asked everyone present if anyone had moved the body, but the two doctors insisted no one had touched Marilyn's corpse before the police arrived. Clemens thought both physicians were acting strangely. Engelberg, the taller and more handsome of the pair, was particularly despondent and unresponsive. Dr. Greenson, on the other hand, did most of the talking, and he had an oddly defensive attitude, as if he was just daring Sergeant Clemens to challenge him on his version of events. There was a lot about this scene that Clemens wanted to challenge him on, though. In all the suicides by taking pills Sergeant Clemens had witnessed, the body had a natural tendency to convulse. But in this case, the corpse was laid out straight. Coinciding with this was the fact that there was no vomit present around the actress's mouth or anywhere else in the room for that matter. This was something else Sergeant Clemens had seen time and again in suicides of this nature. But the big thing about the scene that made Sergeant Clemens realize something was amiss was that there was no water in the room, which Marilyn would have needed to swallow all the pills needed to kill herself. Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg even helped him search the room and adjoining bathroom for a water glass, but none was found. The story Eunice Murray told Sergeant Clemens was that she had gotten up around midnight to use the bathroom when she noticed a light under Marilyn's bedroom door and the phone cord trailing under it. When she went to check on the star, she was alarmed to discover that Marilyn's door was locked. Concerned, she immediately phoned Dr. Greenson, who lived nearby. After he got there, he went around outside the house and parted the bedroom curtains only to see Marilyn's lifeless body sprawled out on the bed. He broke the window in order to get inside, but was unable to revive Marilyn Monroe. Sergeant Clemens asked Murray if all this went down around midnight, why had she waited four and a half hours to call the police? This question appeared to catch her off guard, and she, Dr. Greenson, and Dr. Engelberg struggled to come up with a half-hearted excuse that they had first phoned the movie studio to inform them of what had happened. She also said she called her son-in-law, Norman Jeffries, over before phoning police in order for him to come over and clean up the broken glass from the window they had smashed open. All of this sounded both rehearsed and extremely suspicious to Sergeant Clemens. Later, after the L.A. homicide detectives took over the investigation, Sergeant Clemens learned that Murray had changed her story and adjusted the time she got up to 3.30 in the morning, only a half hour before phoning police. Even more suspicious, when the sergeant got a look at the crime scene photographs, he saw a water glass sitting on the nightstand next to Marilyn's body that had not been there before. Marilyn Monroe's body was taken to the L.A. coroner's office, and the medical examiner assigned to the case was a young deputy M.E. named Thomas Noguchi. If you've watched any true crime shows over the years, then you've likely heard of Thomas Noguchi before. He was a rising star in the L.A. coroner's office, and he would be responsible for several high-profile autopsies over the years, including Sharon Tate, Robert Kennedy, Janice Joplin, Natalie Wood, and John Belushi, among others. In 1962, Dr. Noguchi noticed a number of abnormalities in the case of Marilyn Monroe. For one, despite Dr. Greenson insisting Marilyn had ingested a large number of Nembutal capsules, her stomach was completely empty. Back in the 1960s, Nembutal was a commonly prescribed sleep aid for people. Although in later years it would be taken off the market and would be used only in specific circumstances, such as hospital sedation and even in some state executions. For Marilyn to have consumed the amount of Nembutol found in her bloodstream, Dr. Noguchi believed she would have had to have consumed around 40 to 42 capsules, but no capsule residue was found in her body. Dr. Noguchi suspected the drugs may have gotten into her system either through an injection or by use of an enema. Yet no puncture mark was found on Marilyn Monroe's body. Although, Noguchi also admitted that injection wounds are often difficult to locate. As for an enema, back in the 1960s, there was a hip fad among the rich and famous to receive enemas for all sorts of ailments. And Dr. Noguchi did observe Marilyn had a swollen colon and intestinal tract. But when he sent tissue samples from Marilyn's colon and other organs out for testing, he was later told the samples mysteriously vanished. Besides the disappearing evidence, Naguchi also noted several other unusual things about this autopsy. This included a few unusual bruises on Marilyn's body as if she'd been assaulted, along with signs of lividity, the telltale discoloration from the blood settling in the body, in regions of Marilyn's body that suggested she had been moved after death. Despite questions raised by Dr. Noguchi and other members of his staff, the L.A. coroner's office would go on to list the cause of death for Marilyn Monroe as probable suicide. And that's a verdict that has remained all the way up to today, despite repeated efforts by some investigators to reopen the investigation. In 1982, the L.A. District Attorney's Office, under public pressure, did finally reopen the investigation, although they too ruled Marilyn's death a suicide. Despite the many questions that have been raised and evidence that has contradicted the official story, there has never been an official coroner's inquest and no grand jury called. In the days that followed Marilyn's death, the only witness police officially interviewed was Dr. Greenson. Marilyn's body was released to her former husband, Joe DiMaggio, who made the funeral arrangements. And on August 8th, she was buried in a private ceremony that was limited only to close friends and family. To understand the events that led to Marilyn Monroe's death, it's worth looking back a few years to the events that made her a star. After signing her first contract with Fox in 1946, Marilyn spent the next few years only able to get the occasional bit part in movies. Things changed dramatically for her in 1952 when she got a starring role in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which became one of the defining roles of her career. Practically overnight, Marilyn Monroe became known as the number one Hollywood sex symbol. She even managed to get her handprints immortalized in the sidewalk outside Grauman's Chinese Theater, just like the stars she'd idolized as a little girl. In 1952, she met baseball legend Joe DiMaggio and the couple married two years later. But DiMaggio couldn't handle Marilyn's superstardom and sex symbol image, and he quickly turned both possessive and physically abusive toward her. They divorced just nine months later. She always wanted to be seen as a serious actress in serious roles. She moved to New York to study acting with the legendary Lee Strasberg School. It was at this time she rekindled an old relationship. She had known playwright Arthur Miller for a few years, and it's rumored they'd had an on-again, off-again fling in the past. In 1956, Marilyn convinced Miller to leave his wife and marry her instead. It was also at this time it's believed that Marilyn Monroe came onto the FBI's radar. This was still the era of the Communist Red Scare, and Arthur Miller just so happened to be a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Marilyn stood by her husband even as he was brought forward to testify before Congress at the House Un-American Activities Committee. During their short marriage, Marilyn suffered two miscarriages that emotionally devastated her. This led to the first of several suicide attempts throughout her final years. It's known that before her death on August 4, 1962, Marilyn attempted suicide on at least four occasions, some of which were by attempting to swallow too many barbiturates. Further trouble occurred in Marilyn's life after her next two movies, Let's Make Love and The Misfits, were flops. The Misfits proved to be especially troublesome for her because her husband, Arthur Miller, had written the screenplay for her. But during production, the couple were constantly at each other's throats on set. That proved to be the final straw for their relationship, and the couple divorced in 1960. After that, Marilyn Monroe returned to Hollywood. She bought a house in Brentwood, and friends and family noticed that her drinking and pill-popping increased greatly during this time. She was lonely and feeling insecure about her age. Although she was only 36 when she died, Marilyn was constantly worried that her beauty was fading, and with it, so was her film career. She began seeing Dr. Greenson in 1960 for her anxiety. Greenson was a well-known psychiatrist to the stars, and he had treated Frank Sinatra among other Hollywood luminaries. Greenson had a great deal of influence on Marilyn's life and the decisions she made. The house Marilyn bought was only minutes away from where Dr. Greenson lived, and it was Greenson who introduced her to and insisted that Marilyn hire Eunice Murray as her housekeeper. It turns out that not only was Murray a longtime associate of Greenson, but her first career was actually as a psychiatric nurse. Now of course we can simply explain away Murray's background as an attempt by Greenson to keep an eye on his famous patient and ensure her safety. She was a deeply troubled woman with a history of attempted suicides. In fact many people believe that if Marilyn were alive today she'd have been diagnosed with chronic depression and possibly even bipolar disorder. There is one rumor though that said Dr. Greenson may have actually been a communist spy and that he and Eunice Murray may have been tasked by the Soviets with keeping an eye on Marilyn. Now, you may be wondering why anyone would want to spy on Marilyn Monroe. Well, that's because among the many romantic relationships Marilyn had throughout her life, this included the most powerful man in the world. Around 1955, Marilyn met a handsome young senator named John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It was a pretty open secret around Washington about Kennedy's extramarital affairs. But Kennedy's wealth and privileged background had helped cover up his infidelities throughout his life. In fact, during World War II, it's known that JFK had a romantic relationship with a Danish journalist named Inga Arvid, who J. Edgar Hoover strongly suspected of being a Nazi spy. Not just any spy, though, but one who had actually been romantically linked to none other than Adolf Hitler himself. In fact, Arvid had been Hitler's guest in his private box at the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. When Arvid emigrated to the United States in 1940, she had used her interviews and personal photographs of Hitler to find work with American newspapers. Despite these connections, Hoover's agents were never able to conclusively prove that Inga Arvid, or Inga Binga, as John F. Kennedy affectionately referred to her, was an actual spy for the Nazis during World War II. But John Kennedy's wealthy and influential father, Joseph, had big plans for his son, and he was not about to allow any sort of scandal to tarnish his reputation this early on in his military and future political career. In order to make the scandal go away, John Kennedy's father arranged for Arvid to be relocated to another job far away from Washington. Meanwhile, John F. Kennedy's superiors in the Navy transferred him to South Carolina, effectively severing the relationship. During the 1960s, JFK's relationship with Marilyn Monroe continued even after the then-Massachusetts senator secured the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Although by then, she'd been asked by Frank Sinatra and the soon-to-be president's brother-in-law Peter Lawford to keep things quiet so as to not cause a scandal. But after JFK won the election, Marilyn had a difficult time keeping quiet, and an FBI wiretap picked up her openly discussing classified information she had learned his pillow talk from John F. Kennedy. The relationship reached a pivotal point after Marilyn's famous performance in which she sang Happy Birthday to President Kennedy at Madison Square Garden on May 19, 1962. It's said that she and Robert Kennedy got into a heated argument shortly before the performance when he tried to talk her out of it. But Marilyn went on stage anyway and sang a sexy and scandalous birthday song to JFK. Three months later, Marilyn Monroe was dead. A week after the birthday performance, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover requested a rare private meeting with Kennedy in the Oval Office. Hoover informed Kennedy of the national security risk Marilyn presented. And immediately after, an order was given to the White House switchboard to cut off all communication with Marilyn Monroe. This sudden rejection drove Marilyn into a frenzy. She began frantically calling the White House and began making so much of a public stink that Bobby Kennedy had to fly out to Los Angeles to break the news to her that the relationship with his brother was over. But that wasn't the end of Marilyn's ties to the Kennedys. Soon after, Marilyn and Bobby Kennedy began their own love affair. Marilyn had spent much of her life determined to better herself and break herself out of the dumb blonde image that society leveled upon her. As a high school dropout, she tried to educate herself by becoming a voracious reader and filling her house up with works of great literature. But many people believe that one of the things Marilyn did to improve herself may have also put her life in danger. You see, in order to keep up with the politics of the day that both John and Robert Kennedy loved to talk about, Marilyn began keeping an infamous diary known as her Little Red Book that reportedly contained all sorts of politically dangerous secrets, including top secret details of the failed Bay of Pigs invasion and attempted CIA plots to assassinate Cuba's Fidel Castro. Many people who have looked into Marilyn Monroe's death believe the diary may have been the key to her demise. In the weeks leading up to her death, Marilyn became increasingly paranoid that she was under surveillance and that her house was bugged. The filing cabinet where she stored her diary was broken into twice. She began carrying loads of change in her purse at all times so that she could use the payphone down the street rather than her own phone. And you see, what's most shocking about Marilyn Monroe's belief that she was being watched is that she was right. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. This is the first part of a special two-part episode I'm doing on the death of Marilyn Monroe. Lucky for you, you're not even going to have to wait the full two weeks until part two comes out. I'll be releasing the second part of this episode a few days early on Friday, March 29th, so be sure to look for it then. In other business, I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thanks so much to Consuelo, Will, Rebecca, Lois, and Sandra. You're all amazing. And thanks to all my other patrons as well. If you're interested in helping support the show, you can follow the link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Patrons get all sorts of nifty bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our bonus mini-episodes. They're like these full-length episodes, only fun size. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Each review and subscription helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Google Play, and many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Besides that, we're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so feel free to follow us and even drop us a line to let us know how we're doing. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.